0: This is They Create Worlds, episode 182, The Koei Dynasty. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co host, Alex, the historian. Hello. Last time, we terrified you with the story of Koei, especially some parts that may have been edited for younger listeners. But this time, we will not be doing that. We will be doing more Koei, but more violent, and violence is okay. That's right. In our last episode, we
1: began our look at Koei, the brainchild of the power couple of the Japanese video game industry, Yoichi and Keiko Arakawa, as they took their first steps into the nascent Japanese computer game industry and were real pioneers in areas such as military strategy, grand strategy, RPGs, and yes, even eroge. When we left our company at kind of the end of the decade, they had really settled into a groove. I mean, they definitely had their niche. The Nobunaga's Ambition series was very popular. It started in 1983. In 1985, they expanded the gameplay of Nobunaga's Ambition into ancient Chinese history with Romance of the Three Kingdoms. In 1988, they started yet another strategy RPG hybrid series that we didn't talk about last time that is less a series and more a category of games. They were very big on branding categories of games called the, I'll butcher this horribly, but the Recoitian, Recoitian series of games. I'm so sorry. Which were released under yet another pseudonym for Yuichi Arakawa. We talked about his Ko Shibusawa pseudonym. These were released under the name A.G. Fukuzawa, but again, it was just Yoichi overseeing things, which were lighter on the strategy elements and heavier on the RPG elements. Kind of a flip of what's going on in Nobunaga's Ambition or a Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Most of these games did not make it into the West. Uh, the first in the series, Ishin no Arashi, was a game once again set in the Warring States period, but instead of being a grand strategy game like Nobunaga's Ambition, You were playing an individual who is attempting to gain influence over politics through his words and his actions. So, you had RPG stats. You could go out and do various activities to train those stats. And then you would do things like engage in conversation trees to gain the trust of other influential people, to engage in debates related to your political ideology, et cetera, et cetera, with the overall goal of having your ideology which is defined at the start of each game, each time you play through, become the leading ideology in Japan. They've got their niche. They're doing well. They're on PCs. They have several very popular series that they can basically just keep churning out forever, and a lot of companies would probably be very happy with this. But we have to remember who we're dealing with here, which is the Arakawas. They are very driven. They are very ambitious, and they don't want to just be a niche company on computer platforms, which, as we've talked about many times before, is not the primary platform in which most Japanese individuals were engaging with video games. They wanted to be at the heart of it all. They wanted to be the number one company in all of electronic entertainment. That is still their goal today. Obviously, right now, they're nowhere near that, but that's always been their goal. So, of course, that means not just being a niche computer game company. It means that you had to get onto the Nintendo family computer.
0: So how do they get onto the NES or the Famicom? Because I don't remember any Koei games on either of those platforms.
1: There were, and some even came to the United States. Most of them came to the United States. As a matter of fact, featured in Nintendo Power, sometimes, and everything. True story. Well, don't leave me hanging. Which (laughs) games
0: are we talking here? I got a collection I need to check.
1: Well, uh, no, you you definitely don't have any of them, but of course their leading game, their most popular flagship title at this point, is uh, Nobunaga's Ambition, the grand strategy game, so that's the most logical choice. There are just a couple of problems, though. First of all, Nobunaga's ambition being a grand strategy game, it requires a lot of memory. We've talked before in our episode, our two-part look at the family computer in Japan, about how when things started, the cartridge size was not very big on the NES. That's why they took their brief detour into the Famicom disk system. But then over time, there started to become more sophistication in the cartridges. You could pile more memory and you could use custom chips to improve things even more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Still, this was going to be a real challenge because there was a lot of data you had to keep track of, and there was a lot of data you had to keep track of in saved games as well. You didn't just need a larger ROM. You also needed more than your fair share of RAM, of writable memory in this thing as well. So that's challenge number one. Challenge number two is that getting on the family computer is very expensive. We've talked about this before, but the manufacturing costs for ROM cartridges are so much greater than the manufacturing cost for putting out a cassette tape or a floppy disk. Many orders of magnitude greater. This problem is compounded by the fact that Nintendo has a minimum required order Because remember, at this time, Nintendo is manufacturing all the cartridges. There are a few privileged companies like Namco that are making their own cartridges. But any company that's coming on board, even in Japan at this point, Nintendo manufactures the cartridges. So you have to pay Nintendo in advance to do your cartridge manufacturing. And you have to place a minimum order with Nintendo so that Nintendo feels it's worth their time. And these are big expenses. These are incredibly expensive big expenses for little computer game companies. Koei is a successful company, but it's in a small market, so it's not like they have a great deal of capital lying around. One thing they do have, though, is they have their reputation. They have a reputation for making very good games, and games that scratch a certain itch in this strategy RPG space. So they have the name recognition. Then they also have the business savvy of, particularly, Keiko Arakawa, so in terms of getting the game to fit, Nintendo was actually very interested to have them on the system because they were so well regarded. They had a good reputation. Hiroshi Amauchi of course, is always looking to extend the empire and Koei is not making anything that directly conflicts really with anything Nintendo's doing. They actually work together with Nintendo's engineers to solve some of the problems that they're having in terms of getting the whole game to fit on a cartridge. If you look online, if you look at pictures of that Nobunaga's Ambition cartridge, it is very different from most family computer cartridges. It is much bigger. In order to fit everything in, they used a method that we've talked about before known as bank switching which is when you need more memory than can be addressed by whatever computer system, whatever CPU you're using at the moment— what you do is you have different sectors of memory, and then you have a method of getting the CPU to switch between those banks of memory to kind of fool the whole machine into accessing all of that memory at different times. You can't access it all at once, so you have to be very careful that you never put anything in all of your banks that has to be up there simultaneously. Or you're going to break something, but it's a way to get more addressable memory in. Now, Nintendo already had a bank switching chip, the MMC1 custom chip. MMC standing for multi memory controller or memory management controller. Koei worked with Nintendo to even go a step further by also greatly increasing the amount of writable RAM in there. Most carts could only hold 8 kilobits of writable RAM they were able to put 16 in there, which gave them the space they needed to actually run the darn game. Because of that, it's in a larger cartridge than usual. Famicom cartridges tending to be tiny and this one being not, just because there's more circuit board in there.
0: It looks almost like a cross between a Famicom cartridge and a regular Nintendo cartridge, halfway in between. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right, they didn't have to modify anything when they brought it to the United States because there
1: was so much more space inside those NES cartridges. But yeah, for the Japanese one, it is almost the size and configuration of an NES cartridge rather than a family computer cartridge. So that took care of that. So now there's only the barrier to entry that they have. They came up with a very clever way to take care of this. They didn't have a big distribution network. They didn't work with a lot of different wholesalers. But what they did is they sent out an invitation to all of the major distributors in Japan, very nice handwritten invitations to attend a luncheon at the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. Very swanky, so that they could unveil their new family computer game, Nobunaga's Ambition. Since they only had one salesperson, didn't have a big sales network, they did this ploy to get the world to come to them instead of going out to the world. And at this presentation, The Arakawa's presented this game and told them that this game is going to be a hit, that Koei has a proven track record, and you want to get in on the ground floor of this. So what we would like you to do is place your orders for the game now, and pay us now. Oh dear. Oh, and by the way, you know how most Famicom games sell for under 10,000 yen? We're also going to charge 14,800 yen. So pretty close to 15. Exactly. But this was once again Keiko Arakawa, and they had kind of done this even in their first games, the investment game and the Battle of Kawanakajima. They had actually charged a little more than the going market rate because they figured at the time that Yoichi Arakawa was a very good programmer. Yoichi Arakawa had created two very polished, high-quality games for the time. I mean, they're primitive, but in the context of 1981... They were pretty darn good, and they figured that since there were so many games coming out from hobbyists that were full of bugs and were short or were ugly or crashed and you could never finish them, they figured they had a product that was better than that, and so it was worthy of a slightly higher price. Instead of charging 3,000-some-odd yen, they charged 5,000-some-odd yen, and that again was Keiko Arakawa, the business savvy one, the investor, who made that decision. And it ended up being a very good decision because since the price was higher, the retailers also had higher margins on the software, so they would actually push the Koei games because they made more money on the Koei games, so they would recommend them. She figured the same kind of thing would happen here, and her logic was Koei had also been involved, as we've talked about, in non-game stuff from time to time, and they'd made a word processor, and word processors went for 100,000 yen good solid business software, just like buying Microsoft Word, which you can still do, sort of, even though it's mostly a subscription service now. You know, if you buy Microsoft Word, you're paying more for Microsoft Word than you're paying for the latest PS5 game. And it's always been that way. Her logic was a word processor that all you can do with it is type. Goes for 100,000 yen, and here we have this Nobunaga's Ambition game that is in-depth, and detailed, and intricate, and has strategy elements, and RPG elements, and management elements, and is just this whole great experience, and you can play it over and over, and it never plays the same way twice, because it's a strategy game, different scenarios, different factions, everything... You know, if a word processor can go for 100,000 yen, then we can charge a little more than 10,000 yen for Nobunaga's ambition. They kind of needed the boost a little bit, I'm sure, too, because the manufacturing costs were so much more expensive. They made this pitch to all of these distributors, and they were met pretty much with WTF, mate. (laughs) We don't pay for stuff in advance. This is nuts. Not only no, but hell no, we are not doing that. Goodbye. Keiko Arakawa, who is very determined, has a very fierce will, kept working on them until a small number of them, because they didn't need all of them to sign up. They just needed a few until a small number of them were convinced to take a chance. As Keiko said in retrospective interviews, some of them called and complained to Nintendo about this crazy woman talking these crazy things. And as she says, there were people from Kyushu to Hokkaido who were bad-mouthing her in the trade because who is this crazy lady with these crazy ideas and trying to force us to do these horrible things? But they got a few on board, which is all they needed. Because that was enough, those advanced orders were enough to get them the advanced money that they needed to send to Nintendo to place their order so that Nintendo would manufacture the cartridges. Quite ambitious. It should have been uh, Koei's ambition. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Keiko Arakawa's ambition. There you go. No doubt about it. Long story short, it does become a hit on the Famicom. You know, it's a little bit of a niche genre, so it's not one of the biggest hits ever on the system, but it sells about 500,000 units. It finds a dedicated following amongst a certain segment of the population.
0: Do you happen to know if they did the minimum order, or did they do somewhere
1: north of that? Yeah, I think 10,000 was the minimum order. That was the minimum order in the United States, so it was probably the same in Japan. I think 10,000. Could have been 50,000. It was not 500,000. You didn't have to order half a million. So, no, they had sold far more than the minimum order, but they had to get the money together to make the order before they could sell anything at all. Half a million units was actually really good in the context of the times, because we're talking 1987 here. That's the year it came out on the family computer. As we've talked about before, the market peaked in 1986, and after 1986, the only games that were selling a million units or more in Japan on the family computer anymore were first-party Nintendo titles and Dragon Quest titles, and that was basically it. There might have been one or two other exceptions, but that was essentially it. I mean, 500,000 is pretty good just generally on the Famicom, but especially in that post-1986 period, it's it's actually a quite good showing. Apparently, it was really popular around the Nintendo offices by the developers at Nintendo itself. The Erakawas were told by one person at Nintendo that after the game came out, all they heard when they would walk through the corridors of Nintendo was the, the soundtrack to Nobunaga's ambition playing everywhere. I mean, if you were a certain type of game aficionado This was right up your alley. I mean, you really went for this in Japan in the late 1980s. It was released in the United States, once again at a premium, at a time when pretty much every Nintendo game was kind of in the $35 to $45 range in terms of price. Nobunaga's Ambition was a $70 game in the United States. Obviously, it didn't do nearly so well in the United States, Nor did Romance of the Three Kingdoms or Genghis Khan or any of the games that they brought over to the West. That really wasn't going to make it over here. But still, they had global ambitions. They were making sure to get their games, their Famicom games, into other markets and opening subsidiaries and, and getting their name out there. That's kind of the story of the company getting on the Famicom and getting into consoles, and and henceforth, they would always be a console company as well as a home computer company. Not that they stopped releasing games on home computers, but starting with Nobunaga's ambition, they were officially a console company. Once again, that could have been the stopping point for the forward momentum of this company. And we've seen that with so many companies. <laughs> Absolutely, because once again, they had their niche. Now that they're a little bigger and more respectable, they've left the Erogi behind. They're not really doing adult games anymore, but they've got the grand strategy games. They've got the other series that's more RPG with light strategic elements. They have another successful game in that series called Uncharted Waters, nautical-themed take on this idea. That one comes out in 1990, set during the Age of Exploration. You're basically playing a Portuguese noble who's going out to make his fortune out in the wider world, in the colonial period, sailing around, having adventures, having to keep track of things like your supplies, weather conditions, wind currents. That's another series. And every time they do a series, I mean, we have to emphasize this every time they have a series like this that's successful, they keep making new and improved versions of them and keep updating them because these are the types of games that lend themselves to that. They're systems games. In the 90s, this became very common in the West. You know, you have Civilization and then Civilization 2, and all the way up to Civilization 6. You had Master of Orion and Master of Orion 2. Years of Might and Magic, going through multiple, multiple iterations. Of course, you know, the Europa Universalis games, Crusader Kings, all of the Paradox stuff. The idea that once you have a game that's based more on creating a scenario and having different units and people and other things statted out and whatnot they can become an evergreen property if they're popular because you can always improve the artificial intelligence. You can always improve the interface. You can always improve the depth. You can always go in a slightly different direction and redo systems. Like, there's always something you can improve on these types of games, and your dedicated fans will continue to buy them. You don't get the same diminishing returns as you get with, say, like the Sonic series, where Sonic the Hedgehog was a big hit, and Sonic the Hedgehog 2 was a big hit, and then Sonic the Hedgehog 3 was a little less of a hit, and then Knuckles was a little less, because there's only so much that you can change when you have this set type of action gameplay and these set characters. But a strategy game like this can be evergreen. But again, this is Koei at the forefront. This idea didn't catch on in the West until the 90s. There were some strategy games in the West in the 1980s, of course, uh, companies making those iterating on them in this way was not something that was done. And this is another thing that Koei was really out in front of the market. I mean, they were doing grand strategy and strategy management games well before the civilizations of the world, and they were also iterating on them before that as well. So, I mean, Nobunaga's ambition, they release new ones every couple of years. Romance of the Three Kingdoms, new ones all the time. Genghis Khan, new ones all the time. Uncharted Waters, new ones all the time. Every time they come up with a winner, something that's popular becomes another brand for the company. They're very good at exploiting this. That could have been their thing. They have these in 1993. They do a horse racing simulation called Winning Post. That one is also very successful and starts a long-running series. Another really interesting thing that they do is Keiko Arakawa, being a woman, is very disappointed that the entire video game industry is about shooting things and conquering things and really wants to create games that women will enjoy, too. Not just for sentimentality's sake or for equal rights' sake, though I'm sure that was part of it, but also because, quite frankly, Keiko Arakawa is ever the consummate businesswoman, and she's well aware that women make up roughly half the population of Earth, and that's an untapped market. She actually starts hiring designers in the 1980s that are women. She can't really hire much in the way of programmers because there just aren't that many people going into technical fields in Japan, but they start hiring planners, game designers out of the humanities fields and start staffing up the company with women. And it takes a while for her to hire enough women and to get them kind of all up to speed on this idea of creating video games. But once she has a solid core of these female developers, she initiates the development of a game specifically targeted at women by the name of Angelique. I'm not super knowledgeable in the field, so there could always be an obscure one that came before it, but this is considered to be the first Otome game, which is not just a dating sim, but specifically a dating sim that's targeted at women. She kind of dictated the design of this thing. Keiko was very involved in this. She wanted to be very girly because that's the demographic that she was targeting. So cute girls and cute fashions and lots of pink and all of this. She wanted there to be a lot of hot guys because that's the market she's targeting. And so they chose to take kind of a Greek mythology theme to the setting of this thing because, you know, how the Greeks are always depicted in sculptures as not wearing much and having these big muscles and all of these Olympians and everything. They created a dating sim targeted specifically at women which was, in the context of the Japanese market, pretty much unheard of at the time. Certainly, Otome games were unheard of at the time. The first one came out in 1994 and, again, was successful enough that there were a whole series of these kinds of games that were released in its wake, both more in the Angelique series as well as just other settings as well, all based on this Otome game concept. They've got their simulations, they've got their RPGs, they have their new horse simulation, they have their new Games for Women segment, they're on consoles now. This could be their niche. They would be a perfectly fine company if they just kept doing this forever and ever. And they still do this. I mean, there's still no Nobunaga's Ambition Games coming out. But what did we say about the ambitions
0: of Yoichi and Keiko Arakawa? We wish to own it all. We will take over the entire video game industry, or die trying. Number one in the world.
1: Even though having lots of popular brands and exploiting those popular brands is a great way to get part of the way there, they are still primarily functioning in niche markets. We were a niche company on PC, now we've graduated to a niche company on consoles, which is a bigger pool. But at some point here, we have to stop being just in the niche markets. We have to break through into something that is more mainstream. So we're talking about the 90s now. We're talking about the mid-90s. They've done the Famicom thing. They've done the Super Famicom thing. They've staffed up. Teams are starting to get larger because game development's getting larger. Yuichi Arakawa was intimately involved in game development all the way up until the mid-1990s. The company teams came to be branded after his pseudonyms. As we talked about last time, he had this whole idea that these pseudonyms would allow kind of these brands to live on long after him. At this point, he's having to step back a little more to run the company. The company's getting bigger. They're hiring in more people. But the thing that's on the horizon now is, of course, the Sony PlayStation. The Sony PlayStation is representing a big step forward. Of course, the Nintendo 64 is also sort of in development as well, or about to enter development. 3D is coming. Bigger games are coming that require bigger teams are coming. So, Yuichi takes a step back. They start organizing their teams more, and they're not early on the PlayStation, but there's an understanding that the PlayStation, the Nintendo 64, is the next place they're going to have to go, and they're going to need help. They're going to need to establish a crack team that is basically entirely focused on not just breaking in on these new consoles, not just becoming accustomed to 3D, but with attacking new genres that are going to bring them to the forefront of what is popular in the Japanese marketplace. So in 1996, they establish a new development studio, a new internal development studio, by the name of Omega Force. There's a somewhat convoluted story about how they got the name Omega Force. It's a short story, but it's a little convoluted. They were going to be the fourth development studio in the company, Koei Development Division 4. But they didn't just want to be called number four, so they were thinking of using letters, and they thought that they're kind of the last development division established or whatever, so they decided that they would use the letter Z in the name. But then they decided that that was bad because they thought that out of context that could be kind of weird. So they were like, well, Z is the last letter of the Roman alphabet, so why don't we use the last letter of the Greek alphabet instead, Omega? So they decided to call themselves Omega, and then as a play on the fact that they were the fourth business division... In Japanese, fourth and Force are kind of homophones. They sound the same in Japanese. And so since they were the 4th Business Division, as a little play on words there, they decided they would call themselves Omega Force. This was put together in 1996 to explore new genres. There are a couple of interesting games to look at here. One that was somewhat influential, but not in any way popular, and the other which was very influential and very popular. So we'll start with the one that didn't really make it, but became very influential on things that came after it. That is a game that was released for the uh, Nintendo 64 in 1999 by the name of Winback. Winback is a third-person shooter again they're trying to get into these categories of games that are popular and of course shooters both first and third person are very popular at this time in creating this game kind of the lead designer on this game had come out of the arcade world and the shoot 'em up world so it suggested doing this shooting game but they really wanted to take unique advantage of the N64 controller Because the N64 controller is, as we know, very odd in its shape. I mean, it has some great innovations on it, like that analog stick. But the configuration of the controller was very weird. They wanted to do something that kind of played into strengths, maybe too strong a word, but played into at least the unique configuration of the controller. And of course, one of those things is the Z-trigger that button on the back of the middle section that has the analog stick that you use your trigger finger for to do various things with. That had been used in a few different ways in games. Some games had used it for targeting. Of course, the famous Z targeting system of Ocarina of Time and others. Shooting games had often used that to be the shooting button because it's in a kind of comfy place for doing shooting because it's literally your trigger finger that's holding onto that thing. That was popular in first-person shooters, but they wanted to use the Z-trigger button in a unique way, and in a way that tied in with a third-person shooter concept a little bit better. And so they decided that they would use it as a button to squat and to duck in and out of cover. They decided to make a shooter where you could not move and shoot at the same time, but instead that would be based on kind of sneaking around. It had stealth elements getting to positions of cover, and then shooting from cover and popping up and moving to another piece of cover, this was pretty much the very first cover-based shooter. Unfortunately, I don't know who this developer was, because I really wonder if the developer in question that had shooter experience was on the Time Crisis team at Namco. Because obviously that would be a logical link, because Time Crisis was one of the very first games with any kind of cover-based system, even though in that case it's very different because it's an on-rails shooter, so you have no control of popping up and moving from place to place. It's just that you have the opportunity to use a pedal to duck behind cover while you're doing things. I can't prove that there's a direct link between Time Crisis and Winback. But it wouldn't surprise me if the developer in question maybe came from Namco.
0: Looking at the gameplay, I can certainly see where you can draw that conclusion from. Mm -hmm. The way the characters are designed are very similar to Time Crisis. The cover mechanic has seemed to be very similar where you go to a certain spot and you're popping around trying to shoot them with a very obvious cursor. Mm -hmm. You have the ammo thing on your left-hand side quickly going away, and you got to reload. Exactly. So I can't
1: prove it, but I bet this developer was part of Namco, either worked on Time Crisis or was at Namco while they were doing Time Crisis. This is, as far as we know, and, and, you know, it's always— you always hate saying firsts because you always find something that is even earlier. But— This is basically the first third-person shooter with a full cover system, and it was an influence on some of the later games that came out. It was an influence on Kill Switch, and then Kill Switch was one of the primary influences on Gears of War, and of course Gears of War really defined how we think of a modern third-person cover-based shooting game. The game was not particularly successful in its own time, which is why it did not get a million sequels like so many Koei games do. But it started something, and in a space that Koei was not known for, because that was Omega Force's edict. Go out there and try new things on these new polygonal-focused consoles and bring us into some more mainstream areas. So that was the one game. The other game They made more than just two during this time period, but the other game that is worthy of our consideration here, and which we will spend a little more time on because it is very important, is a little one on one fighting game called Dynasty Warriors. One on one
0: fighting game, you say?
1: Yes. I know what you're thinking out there if uh, you're someone who did not start with the very first Dynasty Warriors game, but the very first Dynasty Warriors game, released in 1996 on the PlayStation, was a one-on-one fighting game. Dynasty Warriors was the brainchild of one of the founders of Omega Force, someone who is still very important at Koei to this day as one of their senior management people, by the name of Kenichi Ogasawara. Ogasawara had a very interesting path into Koei, As a kid, he was not really into technical pursuits, and he only had somewhat limited exposure to video games. I mean, like so many people of his generation, kind of started with Space Invaders when the Invader Boom took off when he was in elementary school. Then when the Famicom came out a few years later, he did play on the Famicom. But he was far more into sports. He was big into baseball. In fact, the Nintendo baseball game on the family computer was the main game that he liked to play on video game systems. He was really far more involved with baseball than he was with games. But uh, as he said in an Iwata Asks interview, when there were rainy days and they couldn't have practice or if they had to end practice early, then they would play video games. But it was not a high priority at that time. However, he absolutely loved history as well. He used to watch the Japanese historical dramas that were on television with his parents. And like Yoichi Arakawa before him, became very interested in the figures from the Warring States period and in uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu and uh, some of the other daimyo of that time. That kind of kept with him. And he became particularly interested in Takeda Shingen who we may sort of recall from the previous Koei episode was one of the uh, combatants at the Battle of Kwanakajima that was depicted in Koei's first game. So he's really into all of these same military historical figures that Arakawa is. Despite his love of history and his love of baseball, in college he ends up going in a completely different direction, and majors in chemistry, because he did very well on it in his entrance exams, So he's like, okay, I guess I'm good at this. Time to go do chemistry. A really kind of eclectic background that only slightly touched on video games and computers. I mean, he did play video games. I don't want to underemphasize that too much. Once he got into college, he discovered Nobunaga's ambition. So here it is, this great grand strategy game where you're taking on these personas from the Warring States period of history that he loves so much. He made it his new mission, not just to join the video game industry, but to go and work specifically for Koei and make Nobunaga's Ambition games.
0: I'm not quite sure if Koei's looking for a chemist, though.
1: (laughs) Right. And this actually brings up an interesting point. You know, he wants to get in to be a planner. He wants to design games. He knows he's not big on the computers and everything. They do employ planners. However, one of the things that I really want to emphasize at this point in our look at Koei is that it really does grow out of Yoichi Arakawa's programming brilliance. He was and is a brilliant programmer. In the early days of the company, they did a couple of PC ports of arcade games, they did one for Jalco for instance. There would be times when the programmers would say, oh, this is too hard, it can't be done, or whatever. Then Arakawa would come in and do it and show them, no, it is possible. Programming has always kind of been at the heart of what Koei does and part of Koei's identity as a company. I think that's probably part of the reason why they were able to grow in this way in the middle of the 90s. Even though the love of history and the love of strategy and simulation was a lot of what was driving the company forward, even more fundamental to the Koei identity than any of that was a real pride in programming ability and adapting to new hardware and pushing new hardware and coming up with ways to use hardware. So he was able to join the company, but they didn't let him be a planner right away because he didn't have much programming skill. And so the company was like, oh, no you got to go get some programming chops first because you cannot create a game without knowing something about programming. Now, remember, they have planners. They do have separate programmers and planners. It's not like you have to be a programmer to design a game at Koei in terms of, like, your actual day-to-day job. But I think this says something fundamental about Koei's philosophy, that they felt that they were a strong company in programming first, and that everything else they did sprang from that. And I'm sure that has to go back to a philosophy of Yoichi Arakawa, because he was definitely a hotshot programmer. So he did his apprenticeship, he did a little uh, programming, then he got to transition after about six months into planning. He did a couple of games on the Super Famicom, and then he was part of this Omega Force transition onto these new platforms. He had worked with Akihiro Suzuki, another high-ranking executive now at the company, who was the co-founder of Omega Force. And so Oga Sawara was brought along by uh, Suzuki into the new organization. When it came time to figure out what to do with this 3D technology and with the new PlayStation, the logical thing to do was to go into 3D fighting games because these were all the rage. I mean, the Tekken series was huge at the time. The Virtua Fighter series was, of course, on Sega's system, not the PlayStation. But same deal. It was a really popular series. 3D fighting games were having a moment here. He decided that that's what he would do is do a 3D fighting game. He wanted to place it within the context of Koei, both uh, Koei generally and his love of history. So he decided, let's place this in a historical setting. Let's make the Koei-ness of this be that it's in a historical setting. And he thought that the Romance of the Three Kingdoms period, when you have these great semi-legendary leaders of these Chinese kingdoms and factions, seemed like a particularly good fit. He decided to create this game kind of in this period of the Koei series Romance of the Three Kingdoms. But he didn't want it to be like the Street Fighters and Tekken's of the world where you were fighting each other with fisticuffs because combat in those days you know, was done with weapons, with swords and such. So he wanted it to be a weapon based fighting game. Not the very first one. They didn't pioneer that, but they were doing it at a time when they were still not super popular. It was really Soul Calibur that started making weapon based fighting games particularly popular. And this was several years before Soul Calibur, but it was not first. So that's what he did. It's this one-on-one fighting game. He put a great emphasis on having fluid animations as a way for it to kind of stand out. You play these heroes in these one-on-one matches, and because it's in this period of competing dynasties, they called it Dynasty Warriors. It was fine, I guess. It did well enough. It did well enough that they were definitely going to do a sequel to it. But it was that sequel where the story takes its turn, because by this time now, the PlayStation 2 is going to be coming out. Now that Koei is comfortable on these 3D systems, now that Koei has staffed up to bigger team sizes to work on these systems, now that Omega Force is going, they're ready to hit the ground running on the PlayStation 2. On the PlayStation 1, they were coming in a little later. On the PlayStation 2, they're coming in at launch. Like literally at launch, they create a game called Kesson, which we're not really going to go into here because I don't have a lot of interesting information about it. Kesson was actually a launch title, and it was a game that was kind of a tactical strategy real-time game with units and stuff. It spawned a series briefly. It was kind of successful. But they were also going to be moving Dynasty Warriors over, and the second Dynasty Warriors game was going to be on the PlayStation 2. There were a couple of things that went through Ogasawara and Suzuki's minds as they're thinking through this game. First of all, we're now talking about, it comes out in 2000, so they're probably starting to work on it in 99, maybe late 98, I don't know, but the late 90s is when they're working on it. By this time, that fighting game moment is starting to pass. Not that some fighting games aren't still popular, but the barrier to entry has become so high for the average player because there are all these intricate combos and special moves and strengths and weaknesses between various characters, etc., etc. While the genre is still doing okay, it's having trouble attracting new players. They weren't very high on the idea of doing just another one-on-one fighting game for that reason. At the same time, they were also looking at the fact that the PlayStation 2, of course, was way more powerful than the original PlayStation For the first time, you were looking at a system that was going to be powerful enough to have quite a number of polygonal 3D characters on the screen at the same time. It just so happened that at this time as well, a lot of the staff were playing real-time strategy games, like, all the time, because this was the period of time when RTSs were really all the rage. Out of this, he got the idea, it's like, well, we've got these generals— You know, because the first game featured these generals fighting each other, but really, generals don't engage in single combat. They command armies, and you've got these real time strategy games, and some of them have these specialized units. And it's like, what if we take this basic idea of a fighting game, keep it in our historical setting of dynasty warriors, but make it more in the style of what the Japanese call Ikitusen, which loosely translates as one versus a thousand? This idea of this great, powerful warrior taking on a whole horde of faceless soldiers, henchmen, etc. All of these ideas coming together, the increased power of the PlayStation, the popularity in the office of RTS games, the way fighting games are becoming less and less accessible to new players, they came up with the idea for Dynasty Warriors 2. That's where you get the basic, standard Dynasty Warriors gameplay that still exists to this day, where you're playing this general and you're moving through these levels full of beat 'em up hack hack-and-slash, kill-everything-on-the-screen action to complete these missions. We can throw a lot of them at this guy because the PlayStation can handle it. Exactly. Dynasty Warriors 2 comes out in 2000, and this represents a new inflection point for Koei as a company. Because Dynasty Warriors 2 becomes a huge hit. Games in the series start selling over a million copies each. It even gets some notice in the West, has some success in the West. For the first time, they have a powerful franchise that is capable of selling millions of copies every time it comes out, and which has some appeal outside of just Japan. This helps power Koei into a new era of prosperity. The company goes public in 2000, which is right as Dynasty Warriors 2 is coming out. So Dynasty Warriors 2 wasn't the reason they could go public, but it's all caught up in this period of reaching new successful heights. Yoichi Arakawa actually decides that he wants to get back into development more. He's kind of getting sick of managing, plus now they're a public company. So I don't know exactly when this transition happens. I don't know if it's in 2000 or if it's a couple of years before, or a couple of years after, because uh, I don't have the Japanese sources on this. But at some point right in here around the year 2000, Yoichi goes back to focusing on leading game development and Keiko becomes the CEO and chairman of the company and runs it for the next several years. I mean, she's always been intimately involved with the running of the company, but now she has the titles to back it up as well, which, again, is pretty remarkable. I mean, obviously, it's a family company, so it's, it's not surprising that she'd be able to do that. It's not like she had to convince a bunch of men of her worth. Uh, Yoichi knew her worth, and it was their company. But still, to have a woman as the chairman and CEO of a major Japanese video game publisher, that's pretty incredible, quite frankly. I mean, that's still something that doesn't happen in the normal course of events. You know, that power couple keeps powering on. With that public funding, they really start branching out again, because now they're moving to the top here. I mean, again, I mean they're not the top publisher on the PlayStation 2, but they have a very successful PlayStation 2 franchise that's just starting out. All their other franchises are still going on, and they're making other games. We're not mentioning every Koei game on this. Once again, that could be the place where they... You know, stop. It's like, okay, we've conquered modern games. We're no longer making niche games. Dynasty Warriors is not a niche game. It's a very mainstream, successful franchise. That could have been another plateau point for the company. But they didn't rest on those laurels. They could see that the Japanese industry was in danger of beginning to stagnate. We've talked about some of the problems that the Japanese industry had in the 2000s. This is a period of time when there was starting to be consolidation, when there was starting to be a decline in the home Japanese market, and it was a time when Japan was starting to become more connected, not just with the internet, but through cell phone networks, which they were very early adopters of. So at this point, the Arakawas decide to branch out again. They use some of this public money. They found a new subsidiary called KoeiNet, and they started to move heavily into cell phone games. They brought in a new executive to run this part of the business by the name of Kenji Matsubura, who had a business background but had been involved in hardware and software, computers, for his entire career. After graduating university in 1986, he worked for Hitachi for 11 years. Then he moved on to Oracle for another five years. So he started with hardware to Hitachi, then business software, with Oracle and then joined Koei in 2001 to head up KoeiNet, you know, kind of lead them into this new area. The other thing that happened around this time is that the MMOs were becoming very popular in the West. People in the office were starting to play and Arakawa himself always being a huge game player, saw this and was like, this is an area that we need to be in as well. Let's make the first Japanese MMO on consoles. He decreed in 2002 that the company would make Nobunaga's Ambition Online, the first Japanese MMO to enter development. It was not the first to be released. Final Fantasy XI started development a little bit after Nobunaga's Ambition Online, but because Koei had some trouble getting the whole thing going, Final Fantasy XI actually beat it to market. So it wasn't quite the first on the market, but it was the first one That was started in development. It had some success for a time, but I mean, it was never a juggernaut like the big MMOs. But here we go. We're expanding into cell phone games. We're expanding more and more into Asia, into East Asia, continental East Asia. We're doing MMOs. We're getting into this internet space. They're continuing to try and find ways that they can grow the company. Keiko leads the company until 2006. Then she steps back, she remains a director, but she steps back and they bring in another guy by the name of Masaru Iori to be the chairman and CEO, who I really don't have any information on. He's just the guy that became the CEO. But for the first time, the Arakawas are not running the company. Though They're both still directors. It's still the company they founded. Their influence over the entire company is still immense, but they've both stepped back from the day-to-day running, though Yoichi is still heavily involved in product development. Then in 2007, Kinji Matsubara is promoted to president of the whole company because he's had such success with the cell phone part of the company that he becomes the president. So again, in this period, they've broadened now. They've found a new area to go into to continue trying to have some success in Japan with the console market starting to decline a little bit. They still don't have the international presence that they would like the Dynasty Warriors games do, like I said, have some traction in the West, but they're kind of growing at a modest pace. Matsubara, as the president, has put together like a five-year growth plan, midterm plan, which calls for them to kind of keep on keeping on. They don't have any grand plans at this point to take the next step, but then they get word of some shenanigans going on with a little company called Tecmo. Now, we're not going to do the history of Tecmo here. This is a Koei-focused episode. But in this period of time now, we're talking 2009, 2010, there's been a lot of consolidation in the Japanese industry. The industry has truly stagnated. The domestic market has not grown much in the last 10 years. The move to HD on consoles has had a really adverse impact on Japanese publishers because of the way they do development. We've talked about this in other episodes. We won't belabor the point here. But this is why you see so many of the Japanese companies merging in this time period. In addition, there's a real feeling in this time period that because the Japanese market is so stagnant, that in order to survive, companies are going to need to look more and more to the West. They needed to make games that were big in America. While some games created in Japan have obviously always been big in America, There was always kind of a, we're developing for Japan, and if it's something that makes sense in America, we'll also release it in America and we'll make money there, but they were thinking of the domestic market first. But now there's a really desperate desire to appeal to the West, and Tecmo is one of the few Japanese publishers that has kind of cracked the code. Toronobu Itagaki and his Team Ninja, with their Dead and Alive games and with their Ninja Gaiden games, have figured out a way to get a pretty big profile in the West. They're still one of the smaller publishers in Japan, but they have an outsized ability to connect with Western audiences through Itagaki and his team Ninja. Then there's a whole disastrous kerfluffle between the president of Tecmo and Itagaki that results in Itagaki leaving the company. The president of Tecmo resigns soon after, Yasuharu Kakihara, the son of the founder of Tecmo, kind of steps up to take a more active role, but there's a lot of feeling that without Itagaki and that magic touch that he had leading the way, that Tecmo was no longer going to be able to create the same caliber of games, and as a smaller publisher, they look to be in trouble, and so the vultures start circling, and Square Enix comes knocking because at Square Enix, Yuichi Wada has a plan to greatly expand Square Enix's popularity around the world. This plan has a lot of issues that we won't go into here. Wada ends up having to leave the company in the end because mistakes were made. But this is not a Square Enix episode either. This is a Koei episode. So for our purposes here, Wada at this time is really looking to make a big push into the West. So he sees a very vulnerable Tecmo, which has franchises that appeal in the West, and so he makes an offer to buy the company. Tecmo's a public company. It's one of these things where if another company offers enough to buy you, even if management doesn't really want to sell, there comes a point where your fiduciary duty to your shareholders means that you kind of have to or at least put it to a vote of your shareholders because you owe them the opportunity to maximize the value of their shares. So a pretty good offer is made, but Kakihara doesn't really want to take it, and I don't have a lot of insight into all of this, but I imagine part of it is that Square Enix is such a larger publisher than Tecmo is that my guess is Kakihara probably figured that they would just be devoured, broken up, swallowed up by Square Enix, and Tecmo would cease to be a distinct anything anymore within that machine. Kakihara is the son of the founder, so there's some special feeling there, I imagine. Now, this, that is all speculation. I want to make that clear. They decline Square Enix's first offer. Kinji Matsubura at Koei hears about this. And even though at the time, KoE had not been looking to make any acquisitions—Matsubura himself said that in an interview—they were not looking at that time, suddenly there was an opportunity here. Because KoE and Tecmo, they were fairly similarly sized companies— Both Arakawa and the Kakihara family went way back in the industry, and so they had relationships, they knew each other, they were comfortable with each other. Koei needed games that would appeal in the West, just like any other Japanese developer did at this time. Matsubura sensed that with the good feeling between the Arakawas and the Kakiharas that there was an opportunity here to have more of a meeting of more equals. Now, believe me, it's it's Koei buying Tecmo. It's not a complete merger of equals. But there seems to be an opportunity here to have something a little more equal than Tecmo just being gobbled up by one of the really big top six or so publishers in the Japanese market.
0: It's an acquisition by peers, not acquisition by the great white shark of doom. Exactly.
1: So Matsubara, after getting the approval of the Erakawas and of the board, reaches out to Yasuhara Kakihara and proposes a merger, and two days later... Two days later, they come to an agreement to merge. This was at the tail end of 2009. The merger itself, because you still have to go through all of the corporate shenanigans that go into an acquisition, the merger itself officially happens in April 2010, and the Tecmo-Koei group is created. We always refer to them colloquially as Koei-Tecmo. On their logos and whatnot, it's it's always Koei Tecmo, but technically the company is named Tecmo Koei. We're going to continue calling them Koe Tecmo, because I just like that better. But technically the company is Tecmo Koei. As with any of these mergers, there's a merger of the leadership. Yasuhara Kakihara becomes the chairman of the company, the Tecmo guy. Kenji Matsubara becomes the president of the new company. Masaru Iori, who had been the chairman and CEO of Koei, actually takes a slight step down because they had to make room for Kakihara and the Tecmo people, and takes charge of Koei Net, which is a big, important part of Koei. So, I mean, it's it's a slight downgrade, but it's still a position of some authority within the combined company. And, of course, the Arakawas are director's This is very much Koei bringing in Tecmo. Even though there's some equality there, it's Koei that's very much driving the ship, not Tecmo. Which is why we're going to kind of stay focused, as we do the remainder of this episode, on the Koei side of the business. We'll touch a little bit on some Tecmo things, but we're not going to focus on that, even though they're now all one big happy family. They create three new companies, Koei Tecmo Games, or technically I think Tecmo Koei Games, but it doesn't matter which has the traditional console, computer, everything development business of both companies, you know, Team Ninjas absorbed into this, etc. Koei Tecmo Net, which is an extension of the cell phone business of Koei, and Koei Tecmo Wave, which absorbs the pachinko slot machine and arcade facilities operations of Tecmo. Because Tecmo did come out of that coin-op industry, and so even though they're not making arcade games anymore, they still have some interest in pachinko slot machines and facilities operations, dating from their coin-op days. So those are kind of the three major entities. They also have regional subsidiaries and that kind of stuff. But those are the three major entities that make up this new Tecmo koE Koe Tecmo, as of April 2010.
0: So close to now.
1: Yes, we're actually doing some fairly modern history. KoE Tecmo partnership has, quite frankly, opens even more doors than I think the Arakawas could have possibly imagined. They knew that by absorbing Team Ninja that they were getting this group that were really good at making slick action games with very nice controls and that had an appeal with Western audiences. But it also ends up inadvertently opening a door into the heart of development at Nintendo. Because right as all of this is going on, Nintendo is beginning the process of making the transition from the Wii to the Wii U. Wii U doesn't come out for another couple of years, 2012, but they're already in the process of starting to figure out how to do HD game development, try to figure out how to do new kinds of game development. Nintendo, for the first time, is starting to really run into trouble in terms of game creation because the Wii was not an HD system like its competitors. Nintendo didn't hit the same stumbling blocks as some of the other Japanese companies did in the middle of the 2000s because they were still working in a world where they were able to work with slightly smaller teams and slightly less robust tools, whatever. They still were able to capture their Japanese marketplace well. They didn't have to necessarily look so heavily to the West. I mean, they were kind of doing okay because they had the DS and they had the Wii going. But now as they're going into this new period, they're starting to hit these same kind of issues, and they're starting to have the same problem that their internal development isn't necessarily up to snuff on all of the modern sensibilities and that they need to start appealing more to the West and they know HD games are right around the corner and this is leading to some tensions within Nintendo's product development apparatus in this time period. One of the areas where this is playing out is in the Metroid franchise. Of course, Metroid had been on the Nintendo Wii There was the very famous Metroid Prime series that started on GameCube and then the later ones, you know, Metroid Prime 3, the first two were on the GameCube, the third one was on the Wii. Metroid had always been more popular in the West, it had never been as popular in Japan. It had just so happened that those Metroid Prime games were not made by the Japanese developers, they were made by Retro Studios in the United States. Now, the creator of Super Metroid, Yoshio Sakamoto was interested in returning to the Metroid series with the programmers at Intelligent Systems, who had been the programmers behind the original Metroid and behind Super Metroid. The problem was they had not been working on these kinds of games. Sakamoto quickly became frustrated with the development process because he didn't feel like the staff at Intelligent Systems were up to making the kind of action game that he was interested in. So he hit upon the idea of contacting Team Ninja and seeing if they would be interested in working in partnership with Nintendo to create a new Metroid game. That's a whole nother story. We're not going to go into details on the development of Metroid Other M here, but it's important to the Koei story because this creates a relationship with Nintendo and it creates a concept of working with other companies on their products that becomes very important. And Other M is a controversial Metroid entry. Don't really want to get into all of that here just because it's not the focus of this episode. But it begins a new era of Koei partnering with Nintendo specifically and other companies more broadly. That kind of brings us to what we just briefly want to cover because it's so close to the modern day that you can't get huge amounts of perspective on it. It brings us to kind of this the latest period of the company, which is taking the games that it has, like Dynasty Warriors and like the Dynasty Warriors spin off series, Samurai Warriors which was basically created to do for the Nobunaga's Ambition games what Dynasty Warriors did for the Romance of the Three Kingdoms games. It has some differences in the sense that the heroes have some more interesting combos and it's more castle-focused rather than open-field-focused, but the same idea of one against many in the Nobunaga's Ambition or in States period setting. Taking what they've done in these two leading series of Dynasty Warriors and Samurai Warriors and starting to branch out and do games with other companies that are basically kind of tie-ins. Now, the first one of these that they did actually predates Metroid Other M, but Omega Force did one called Dynasty Warriors Gundam in 2007, taking the gameplay to the very popular Gundam franchise. They did a couple of others like these, but the key thing with Team Ninja being involved is they kind of got the keys to the Nintendo kingdom. Flash forward a couple more years to 2014, and because of this relationship that the new head of Team Ninja after Itagaki left, uh, Yosuke Hayashi, has with Nintendo, he goes and actually hits up Nintendo and proposes to them that they work on a Zelda game together on the Wii U. It just so happens that Eiji Omura, who is in charge of the Zelda franchise at Nintendo, had just been at the time playing one of these crossover games. There had been a Dynasty Warriors-style game that Koei did uh, for the One Piece manga and anime franchise called One Piece Pirate Warrior. He was really kind of enjoying playing that game, and so when Hayashi came to him and was like, let's do a game together... He was like, this sounds like a great idea. So they do Hyrule Warriors. And it's interesting, it actually started out as being more Zelda-like, where they were putting in dungeons and bosses and all of this stuff, and then Miyamoto got a look at an early build, and Shigeru Miyamoto said, well, this is basically a Zelda game. If we wanted a Zelda game, we could make it ourselves. There's no point in collaborating with you on a Zelda game. We brought you in because we wanted a Dynasty Warriors game, not a Zelda game. So they had to go back to the drawing board and then make it basically a Dynasty Warriors game with Zelda characters, and that, of course, is Hyrule Warriors, which came out in 2014 and was a big success. They did another one, of course, in 2020, Age of Calamity, based on Breath of the Wild. They also, of course, do a Dragon Quest Heroes game that Square Enix publishes. You know, One of the biggest franchises in Japan, they get to do a game. That's pretty successful in Japan as well. They're starting to integrate into the developments of others. They're still releasing their own games. They're still releasing Dynasty Warriors. They're still releasing Romance of the Three Kingdoms. They're still releasing all of these franchises, Nobunaga's Ambition. But they're starting to partner with some of the very most powerful publishers in Japan, which is only helping them grow more and more and more. They're working with Square Enix. They're working with Nintendo. They're working on the Gundam franchise. Then they end up doing a Fire Emblem Dynasty Warriors spinoff for Nintendo. It's kind of interesting. Fire Emblem was kind of on the way down when this was happening. Fire Emblem was a long-running, strategy, tactical role-playing game franchise at Nintendo and Intelligent Systems. But it had really been in decline for quite some time. There had been a console version released in 2007. After that, because it hadn't done particularly well, they stopped releasing console versions and kind of relegated it to the DS. They were very near, I think, probably just giving up on the franchise altogether. But then in 2012, they released Fire Emblem Awakening, which became a complete surprise success both in Japan and in the United States, where Fire Emblem games were not usually that well-received. It was kind of well-received in the West as well. Suddenly, the Fire Emblem franchise was very hot again. So instead of winding the thing down, they decided to keep going with it, and then they ultimately decided that they wanted to bring it back to console again. However, They were running into the same problem that we talked about that Nintendo as a whole had in transitioning from the Wii to the Wii U and the problem that the Metroid team had at Intelligent Systems from going back to making Metroid games again with Other M after not having worked on the series in such a long time. Because the last Fire Emblem had come out in 2007 on the Wii, the team wasn't very well equipped to work on modern high-definition video games. But they wanted to put their new Fire Emblem game on the Switch. They wanted to move off the DS and get back into mainstream consoles. But they really didn't think that they had the team that could do it. So they contacted their friends at Team Ninja, who they had been working with on the Fire Emblem Dynasty Warriors game, and who, of course, had partnered on Other M and and Hyrule Warriors and all of this other stuff, and said, could you guys help us with this? I know you're action, guys, we don't need an action game, but could you put us in touch with the strategy side, and can we do a joint development on this? So Hayashi said sure, and he made the connections for them. They decided to join together to create the next Fire Emblem game, with Intelligent Systems doing most of the design and Koei Tecmo doing most of the programming because they were going to work with Koei that got the Nintendo people thinking about the Romance of the Three Kingdoms series, which is, of course, one of the big ones that we keep talking about. We're not talking about every iteration as they come out, but believe me, they've made a million of them by this point. It's still a big franchise. So they're like, well, this is about the three kind of equally balanced kingdoms. Let's do the design of this Fire Emblem game based around three kind of equally powered entities as well. So that's how they came up with the basic idea of Fire Emblem Three Houses. Now, Koei did not do much of the design of it. It was mostly the programming. Though I do think that there was probably some subtle influence, just the fact that Intelligent Systems was working with Koei, just like they decided to do the Three Kingdoms, the Three Houses thing as an homage to the Three Kingdoms. I have to believe that some of that role-playing aspect of some of the Koei stuff had to bleed in in the way that you have the famous tea time conversations and everything with your characters. You're not just on the battlefield, you're also interacting with them outside of the battlefield and doing character development and all of that as well. That, I'm sure some of that had to bleed through from Koei. Of course, Three Houses is a huge hit. It's a great international success. It's Nintendo's name on the package, but it's Koei Tecmo that is a big part of why that game is so successful. That is the modern Koei Tecmo, a company that still has its own franchises that it carries along, a company that's working with others, and a company that is continuing to explore new genres and to stay on top of new trends. The final game that I want to talk about just very briefly in that regard is the game Neo which was an action RPG that came out in 2017. This is kind of the perfect balancing of the Koei philosophy and the Team Ninja philosophy, because it had so many false starts. It was like started and stopped four different times. Development on the thing started all the way back in 2004, when it was basically just going to be a role-playing game. Originally supposed to be based on an unfinished script by Akira Kurosawa called Oni. Then they kind of adapted that. They didn't do it based on that script anymore, but they still kept it in 1600 with a Western protagonist who's in Japan based on a real uh, Englishman who became a samurai in the shogunate period, in the Sengoku period. They kept it a story that involved demons, Oni, and all of that, but no longer specifically based on this Kurosawa script. But it was going to be a role-playing game. They worked on it for about four years and then scrapped it because it wasn't going well. Then it was given to Omega Force and they kind of rebooted it. They decided to take it into a more action direction rather than a more traditional RPG. And then it was scrapped again because it still wasn't going well. Then when Koei Tecmo was bought, Team Ninja was put on the game because it's like we've shifted this to a kind of action-y kind of thing. You're the action people. You go work on it. So it shifted from being less of a Dynasty Warriors game and more of a Ninja Gaiden-type game. But then it became too much of a Ninja Gaiden game. If it's just going to be Ninja Gaiden, then what's the point? So they halted development on it again until the PlayStation 4 came out, and Koei once again needed something to be a flagship on a new generation of hardware, because Koei, as we've talked about before, is a company that never rests on its laurels. They needed something exciting on the PS4, something that would be a little more action-y, something that would appeal both East and West. So they restarted development again at Team Ninja, but this time made it more of a blend of Koei and Tecmo sensibilities. This time got the darn thing over the finish line and had themselves another decent hit on its hand. The first game has sold over 3 million copies. They created a sequel and the first game and the sequel together have sold over 7 million copies. So another worldwide hit on a bigger level now. They're still trying to always reach that bigger level that was made possible by this combination of the Koei and the Tecmo sensibilities. Meanwhile, on the management side, just to catch up real fast as we wrap things up here, Matsubara, who instigated this deal to bring the two companies together, was actually forced out very soon after. They went through a kind of rocky period of transition as they were trying to integrate the companies. They suffered some losses. Before the end of 2010, Kenji Matsubara was out of the company. And who came in to be CEO? No less than Mr. Yoichi Arakawa, back at the helm about a decade after giving up management control. Not his wife, not Keiko. Nope. He continued to run development for another two years. But then in 2012, he had to finally admit that he couldn't really run the company and run development, and so he turned development over to Hisashi Koenuma, who was the creator of Samurai Warriors, the Nobunaga's ambition version of Dynasty Warriors that I talked about, an individual whose history and programming goes all the way back to the early 80s, when as a student, he would read the computer magazines. And he didn't have a computer that he could type programs into, but he would actually just write them out on paper and fantasize about them. A gentleman who actually did then go on to college in electrical engineering at Tokyo Denke University and who joined Koei in 1994. He and Ogasawara kind of represent the next generation at Koei. Koei is still very much staffed at all levels by people that are kind of hotshot developers first and business people second. It's always that very product-forward look. So Koinuma is kind of the modern Arakawa in being the hotshot game developer that's running game development. Yasuharu Kakihara from Koei Tecmo remains as chairman for just a little bit longer. But then in 2012, Kakihara steps back. This is speculation, but I think he was just there as, as much as anything to be part of the transition and the integration of the two companies. He remains a special advisor and a director at Koitecmo, But he, after those first few years, he steps down as chairman. And coming in as chairman to replace Yasuhara Kakihara is, of course, Keiko Arakawa. So once again, and still to this day... The power couple is back on top, guiding the company, and still chasing that ever-elusive North Star to become the number one video game company in the world.
0: They're laying down a foundation for it. As I heard this entire story, I'm thinking of this, like, secret squid monster from the shadows named Koei. That slowly slithers onto every platform, onto every genre. And then now that it knows how to dominate there, it's like, yeah, that's child's play. I'm going to start withering my way into the bigger companies and take them over from the inside. It's like they're doing all of this contract (laughs) development for Nintendo and other companies to sort of like, yeah, we'll take your IP and we're going to throw Dynasty Warriors on it and spit out a new (laughs) awesome thing. Just make sure that Koei label is right next to that Nintendo label leg- because I want my money. And recognition.
1: Yep. Realistically, are they likely to ever truly get there? No, no, of course not. But that's not in any way the point. The point is that unlike so many companies in the business who find a niche or two and then stay there, Koei is always searching, always grasping, always moving, always improving, and always expanding and getting bigger. And because of that, they have managed to survive in this industry from their founding in 1978, when they weren't even in this industry, when they were in textiles, you remember, when they were founded in 1978, to survive all the way to the present day. Because even though it's Koei Tecmo now and not Koei, believe me, Koei is the surviving company. The Arakawas are back in charge, even though they're hitting their 70s and they are uh, continuing to live that dream as the premier power couple in the video game industry. And so even though they'll never be number one, you can't help but admire the dynasty they have created in this industry.
0: Certainly an interesting story and a wild ride, to say the least. Absolutely. Now we get to do housekeeping, which involves such things as what do we talk about next and visions of the future. <laughs> well, this is about the
1: most fun forward in time we've ever come on this podcast, I believe, talking about games that came out just in the last couple of years, even. Very unusual for us. So I figure since we've gone all the way forward, we should take a moment to go all the way back. Forward and back, and then forward and back, and then forward and back, and then one foot forward. Bonus points if you get that reference. One of the premier researchers into the very, very early coin-op industry, like 19th century coin-op industry, Mr. Nick Costa, recently put out a new book covering the very, very, very early developments in coin-op. We're talking about a book that's a cover says it goes from 1735 to 1883. But we're a video game industry. No, we are a video game uh, podcast. We're not going to follow that exact path. We're not going to go back to 1735. As part of this book, he had some new revelations on how the very early nascent industry developed in the United Kingdom between the 1840s and the 1880s. While this is not video games, we've often gone back and talked about elements of the coin-op industry because... Video games were largely birthed out of that existing coin-op industry, and so I always find it fascinating to kind of see where that industry came from and how it developed. So even though it is admittedly maybe a bit of a tangent, it's our podcast, we can do this from time to time, we'll draw some parallels. I mean, we'll tie it in to kind of how the, the coin-op industry morphed into an entertainment industry which could support video games. And we won't go all the way back to 1735, because there's just no point in that. We're going to talk about some very early coin-op history next time.
0: Okay. Well, I guess get your pennies ready, because we got some uh, <laughs> slots to fill. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book is... They Create Worlds, the story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash world. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roller Music, found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons Attribution License.
1: Forward and back, we go forward and back, we go forward and back, we go one foot forward.